Good to see you all. I'm very, very grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be back. Sad about why I'm back, but I'm happy to be with you all. Thank you for having me. Hello to everyone watching online. I love this video montage because uh, it reflects our message today. Have you ever felt stuck? Have you ever felt like you're stuck in your job, in your life, in a relationship, or like nothing is going your way? You feel like you're living the same day over and over and over? Well, this week is the unofficial holiday of feeling stuck. It's Groundhog Day. 1993 film, Groundhog Day, with Bill Murray, starring weatherman Phil, finds himself stuck reliving the same day over and over and over in a time loop. When I talk to people about this movie, they seem to be like a love-hate relationship. You love it, you hate it, it's incredibly annoying, you think it's hilarious. Who loves it? All right, who hates it? <laughs> there are a few. Why is that? It is ridiculous, and it's in some ways problematic, especially 30 years later. What's interesting is Christian scholars who watch this film say this is a deeply Christian movie about death and resurrection. Buddhist priests see this movie and say this is a deeply Buddhist movie about the cycle of getting out of suffering and reaching enlightenment. Rabbis say this is a very Jewish movie about how to achieve shalom in the world and in our life. So how, no matter how ridiculous this movie is, there is something underneath that speaks to humanity. And so let's look at that message underneath. Phil is the embodiment of everything that's wrong with us. He's mean and bitter and selfish and really sarcastic. Uh, he think just the whole movie wants to get people's approval. He thinks he's a celebrity weatherman. And like us, he finds himself stuck in situations that he can't escape. Take a look at this clip. <laughs> well, that's just normal life. Sums it up for me. COVID definitely had some Groundhog Day vibes. The same day over and over and over. Some of you got to spend them in sweats, which is not half bad. The experts who've watched this film, I don't know how they figure this out, but they say that Phil was in this time loop, stuck for 30 years. Can you imagine the same day, same places, same people, same situations for 30 years? What would you do with all of that time? But first, Phil sees time or his very existence as something to be endured. He dwells on the past, how his life used to be. He can't go back to that life. And he becomes angry and bitter, and he just wallows in his existence. And then something changes with his relationship, the time, to his existence. He sees time as like a resource, but he uses it to exploit people, to get what he wants, to make himself happy, to seek any pleasure he can find. He says to a friend, what if there were no tomorrow? And the friend says, no tomorrow, that would mean there are no consequences, no hangovers. We could do whatever we wanted. And that's exactly what he does. Nothing matters, so I'm going to do whatever I want to make myself happy, to bring myself pleasure. He robs a bank because he can. He spends too much of the movie trying to get laid, which is very problematic. And he goes through all of these things and does whatever he wants. And, of course, it just leads to emptiness, to sadness, to a really deep depression. So he gives up. Instead of 
just doing whatever he wants, he pushes back on existence itself. And he tries to end his life every possible way he can think of to try to break the cycle, to get out of the rut. It doesn't work. Wakes up the next day at 6 a.m., the same day, same people, same place, same situations. And it echoes a sentiment that we see in a 2,500-year-old wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes. This was way before our modern anxieties. History merely repeats itself. It's all been done before, and nothing under the sun is truly new. Amen. Have a great day. We'll see you next time. (laughs) I have felt this way, especially mentally. It's stuck in the same way of thinking, the same negative thoughts. Uh, I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. Uh, Your voice doesn't matter. Uh, Imposter syndrome. Someday someone is going to figure out that I don't know what the hell I'm doing. What is that story for you? What's the voice for you that you hear in your head over and over? It probably goes back to childhood. Probably goes back a long, long ways. Or maybe I'm stuck feeling that all of my problems are because everything out there is happening to me. And if this person would just change, if these people would just change, if this job would just change, finally be happy, I would get out of the cycle, I'd get out of the rut. There's a poll done last year that uh, said fewer than 20% of Americans said they were very happy. An American Psychological Association poll from last year found that more than 25%, more than one in four people are too stressed to function. We have a problem where we are stuck, don't know how to move forward. The stress is too much, the anxiety is too much, the depression is too much, the day-to-day grind, it gets to be too much. I feel what Eeyore feels. I was so upset, I forgot to be happy. We do forget what those emotions feel like. We forget sometimes what joy feels like and happiness. You watch home videos over Christmas, and I saw myself open up my Super Nintendo, and I just screamed. (laughs) When was the last time I screamed from joy? We forget what some of those emotions feel like. Why do we get stuck in a rut? Neuroscientists tell us that up to 95% of your thoughts are the same as they were yesterday and the day before and the day before. That is a lot of thoughts that repeat Duke University researchers found that at least 40% of your behaviors are automatic, are habitual, are routine. Most of your life, you are on autopilot. So if you feel stuck in a rut, that's normal. You're a normal human being. And part of it is something in our brains. It's a survival mechanism because if we were faced with massive amounts of new information constantly and and nothing was the same, we would go crazy. We wouldn't know how to survive. So it's our brain's way of protecting us. But we get stuck. It becomes unhealthy, even dangerous for some. And some of those habits we have are pretty weird. Does anybody want to share a habit of their partner next to them? Just come on, throw it out there. No, I found some online. It's okay. 
My husband microwaves his ice cream to make it soupy. Anyone ever tried that before? Oh, we got a thumbs up. All right, I'll try it. Weirdos. I guess it's like a milkshake, right? There you go. Blowing into a cup or glass when you first get it out of the cupboard. It's a habit I've had since I was very little. Bug incident. I would do the same if I was little and a spider was in my glass. For the rest of my life, I would blow in that glass. Our habits go back a long, long ways. Very rarely do we actually question the things that we do. Why do we do that? And oftentimes when you have a partner and you live with them, you realize there's some weird habits. They go back a long, long ways. And so those habits just kind of put us on autopilot. We completely miss what's going on around us. Our bodies are here, our mind, we are somewhere else. It's why I walk into a room and I think, why am I in this room? Because my mind is somewhere else. My first full-time job out of college uh, it was actually a, a place that, that Joey and Whitney work, um, or used to work. I r- often rushed out the door to get to work on time. I was not very punctual. So I developed a little trick. If I kept a pair of shoes in the car, I could put them on on the way to work, and that would save me a few seconds running out the door. Uh, really smart, right? I mean, I see people put makeup on in the car, so why not put shoes on while you're driving? It's perfectly safe. Well, this one day, I decided to be safe, and I thought, I'll wait, just wait till I get to the parking lot at work. I drive 30 minutes to work. Um, I'm already a few minutes late to the morning office meeting. I park, I reach back and get the shoes. No shoes. No shoes for miles. I walk into the office completely barefoot into the meeting. I'm sure Joey was making fun of me. Completely on autopilot. My mind was just somewhere else. And habits die hard, because I was running late on the way to church this morning. I grabbed my shoes and ran out the door and put them on in the car on the way to church. How do we get out of the rut? How do we get off autopilot? For Phil, for him, the rut, the cycle, the same old, same old, it just became too much. Let's take a look at this clip. Cycle becomes too much. He goes a little crazy. But honestly, for us, when the cycle, the rut becomes too much, we're overwhelmed with the fog, the feelings of anxiety and depression. The first step is to allow yourself to feel that. Are you angry about the routine? Are you angry or frustrated about feeling stuck? Feel frustrated. What religious mystics around the world and contemplatives and modern psychology is telling us the way out is through. So just feel it. That's okay. That's good. It's healthy. Be angry. Talk about it. Name it. Tell someone. Text someone. Put some light on that part of you that you're hiding that's deep down. Way out is through. So once Phil hits that rock bottom, he decides, i got to make some changes. i got to try a different path. I'm going to try being a good person for once. So early in the film, there is a, a person who looks unsheltered, and he's asking for money. And Phil, throughout the film, just ignores him or just pats his pockets like he doesn't have any money, like we often do when we go up to an intersection and someone is asking for money. We do what Phil did. 
And Phil finally decides he's going to be nice. And so he gives the man all the money in his pocket. By the end of the day, the man dies. The next day, Phil tries again. He, he takes him out to a nice meal. He's so kind to him. He's taking care of him. And he dies again. No matter what Phil does, he can't save the man. That's often how I feel when I see problems with the world. I realize I cannot fix or stop the inevitability of death. I will die. My loved ones will die. My friends will die. I can't stop it. It's a train that's coming, and it's not going to stop. And it's overwhelming sometimes to think about that. I see economic injustice. I see racial injustice. I see environmental problems. I see the threat of nuclear war in the world. You name it. I can't do anything about it. I can't fix it. It's too much. It's overwhelming. So Phil learns a lesson that helps me through those moments. And it's a prayer that was written by a theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, and it's uh, used by Alcoholics Anonymous, Serenity Prayer. It says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can. You know all of this. The wisdom to know the difference. So after accepting that Phil can't save the old man, Phil changes his approach. He knows he can't save him, so he's going to do everything he can to make sure this man, in the last moments of his life, feels love and belonging and kindness and what a hot meal feels like. I can't save him, but there are these things that I can do to make him know what love feels like. I love that. What's interesting is that this film, through the whole film, nothing changes in the movie, all the people, places, scenarios. The only thing that changes in this film is Phil. And once he begins to change his inner self, then his outer world starts to change. But in the film, he doesn't get a the new job, he doesn't win the lottery, he doesn't go back to his old life. None of that happens before he changes. It's not until he ha experiences some inner change does everything else begin to fall into place. And that's really the whole idea um, of what Jesus meant by repentance. It's, it's this questioning of the narratives I've been taught my entire life. Question those stories. Question how uh, my routines are, my habits. Question how I act. And then when I learn new information, change. That's repentance. But many Christians, especially if you've grown up uh, with Christianity, we kind of bought into this idea that if I just change these outward behaviors, if I just do these certain things or avoid certain things, if I, as long as I don't have sex before marriage, my marriage is going to be perfect. Fill in the blank. If I do this and this and this, God will finally bless me. God will give me approval. Things will start to work out. The religious leaders during Jesus' time believed this, and Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He said, you look perfect on the outside. You are dead inside. Because there was no inner change. They were just going through these motions thinking that's what it means to be a good person. That's what it means to get God's approval. I go to church, you know, at least once a month. 
I give sometimes, and I give to organizations all throughout town. I go to all their fundraising events. I don't do drugs, or you know, I did weed that one time. But yeah, this is a long time ago. I don't drink that much. I'm a good person. I'm a decent parent. I'm doing all the right things, right? I look up to God saying, oh, I've done this and this and this. How, can you get me out of the rut now? I hear a lot of sermons that kind of promise that still. You do the right things, God will bless you. If you give to this church, you'll see it come back to you tenfold. <laughs> Invest in the venues. No, I'm not saying that. We're taught that. Micah, a prophet who lived in 700 B.C., was telling his people who were in a really hard situation. They had experienced massive amount of loss and death and political oppression, deported from their home. They were asking, okay, God, what did we do wrong, and what do we need to do now for you to get us out of this rut? We will sacrifice thousands more barrels of oil and so much more food. We will sacrifice our firstborn child for you, because that's what they did back then crazy. And Micah says, no, what does the Lord require of you? You do justice, which means you do the hard work of making sure the people around you have fair, equitable opportunities, make sure they are treated fairly and lovingly and equitably. You do the hard work of making sure that happens. And he says, love kindness. You do the hard work of being kind. You do the hard work of being less reactive in your life less judgmental in your life. You do the hard work of humility. Admit that you do not have the handle on truth. You do not know it all. Do the hard work of being humble. But the starting point a lot of us have for starting to try to do the right thing and be the right person to live a good life, for a lot of us who grew up in Christianity, it was, the starting point was shame. Right? The very moment you are born, you are a sinner. <laughs> the very moment you are born, you do not deserve God's love. You deserve to burn in hell for all of eternity. Because you are a sinner at birth. That's the concept of original sin. The starting point for living a better life is just shame. You should be ashamed of who you are because you are a sinner. I don't think that is the healthiest place to start. I think that can be abusive and traumatic. Why did we start our theology in the garden with eating a piece of fruit? Why didn't we start our theology when God created everything and God created humanity and said, you are good, you are very good? What if our starting point for living a life was that you are good? What if it started with the source of everything, God, is love. So you are made of love. So live your life out of that place. Because that is your core essence and who you are. What if your starting point was the truth, the reality that you are the result of 14, almost 14 billion years of evolution in this universe? of God creating thing after thing after thing after thing after thing for billions of years and got to you, and you are here for a brief little moment in this life, and it is a miracle. Every single moment is a gift. 
a miracle that you are here. You get to experience anything at all instead of nothing in this 14 billion year cosmos. And you are made of love. I wish that was the starting point theology I got as a kid in Sunday school. But it's not too late to start there, to believe that narrative, that story of who we are. I think in this film, that's kind of what Phil does, is when he has this transformation, his, persp- his perspective completely changes. Rita, uh, his producer in the film, learns about the cycle he's in, and she says, well, maybe it's not a curse. Maybe it just depends on how you look at it. Maybe our existence is not a curse. It just depends on how we look at it. What's our perspective? So Phil began to change his perspective. He became more present. He became more aware of the people around him. He became more compassionate. He began to care about people and things other than himself. And he started to experiment. He tried to do new things every day. And when it didn't work, he went back and he tried something again the next day. And he would learn new skills. I think the same might be true for us. The big idea is that transformation, what the Bible calls salvation, Buddhism calls enlightenment, the way out of the cycle, it starts small. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field, the smallest of all seeds, but becomes the largest. It grows into a tree, and birds come and make nests in its branches, kingdom of God starts small. Small things have a profound effect on our reality. Small things transform our reality. Towards the end of the film, Phil says, once the cycle finally breaks, anything different is good. We got a puppy a few months ago, Winnie. That's Winnie and my partner, Kylie. What we learned with Winnie that we didn't realize when we got a puppy was that when we get her a toy, she'll play with it for approximately two days and then never touch it again. And that when we have all the toys out on the floor, she either has ADHD and doesn't know which one to play with or doesn't want to play with any of them at all. And when your dog is in the same place for a long time, it's not good for them. They don't want to be stuck in the same environment with the same stuff. They need new experiences. They need to smell new things. They need to meet new people and other dogs and be outside and run and play. And it has to be different every day. You can't do the same thing. If you have kids, I hear it's very similar. Is that true? (laughs) Adults are the exact same. We need new. We need novelty. We can't be in the same place doing the same thing every single day we got to do something new. That's what the story of Groundhog Day is. He does something new, something different than before. So that's the challenge I'm asking myself. Tomorrow, what's one new thing that I can do that's different, that's a little more just, uh, more loving? What can I learn? Um, What can I do that's kind, that's different than what I did before? Whether it's kind to myself or kind to someone else my life, around me, because the small things will transform your reality. Rabbi 
Dr. Niles Goldstein says, the movie tells us, as Judaism does, that the work doesn't end until the world has been perfected. Every small choice made out of love is a step in perfecting the world. The idea of a perfect world is just the Jewish idea of shalom, peace, where everything is as it should be in the world. And every kind, loving, just, humble thing you do is a step towards creating that world with God. So when we're stuck in a rut, when nothing seems to change, when the problems seem too massive, I love the words of this Zen Buddhist priest, Lewis Richmond, every breath, new chances. Every breath is a new moment to do something different and something new, something more just, more kind, more humble than before. Lamentations says, certainly the faithful love of the Lord hasn't ended. God's compassion isn't through. They are renewed every single morning. Every morning is a new opportunity to start over. Every breath is a new moment to start over. So what's that small thing you're going to try that's new tomorrow? Maybe it's waking up, and instead of looking at my phone, I turn over and I put my hand on Kylie's back. I say, I love you. What's one small, tiny thing that's different than before? And it's not a magic flip where you do one small thing one day, and then the depression goes away, and the anxiety, it goes away forever. It takes work and practice and repetition to do something different every day, something new. And sometimes it's paired with therapy and medication and prayer and a lot of the tools that we have to help us understand ourselves takes work. It's worth it because you are made out of love and every moment's a gift that you have.